0: I'd love to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter eleven. That's at least where we'll will start today. We won't stay there. Um, we're going to be in a lot of places today. I'm just thrilled to be able to be a part of the uh, the preaching here and to be in this series. Uh, if you've been at Sunset for a while, you know that uh, the, we've been doing this thing through the years—a seven-year cycle uh, of Advent, looking. At the Christmas story, but from the vantage point of seven different mountain peaks within god 's redemptive plan, and this year we find ourselves in year six of number seven, uh, so next year, looking at Christmas from heaven 's viewpoint, uh, but this year looking at uh, Christmas from the the view of the early church and really looking at that question, how did we go from a, a child born in a place where you keep animals laid in a manger? whose family very soon after that had to flee to Egypt out of fear for the life of of their son because Herod was uh, after him, to now be in a global movement that spans the entire world. How did that happen? And of course, if you came to our Christmas program last night, uh, you saw some of that reflected in our Christmas program. Uh, And if you didn't, I hope you come tonight. Uh, but we're also looking at this in our sermon series, too, and just looking at how did this gospel go to the nations. So as we do so, um, goodness, I'd like to pray first of all, and let's just ask God for his help, and then we'll we'll start with uh, Luke and a few introductory comments, but let's pray. Uh, God, we are thankful to be here this morning. I thank you that each person who is here is here, and Lord, I know that as we gather around the season of Advent, as we celebrate the birth of a Savior, um, we also find ourselves in a very busy world, and I, I just reflect back to Pastor Jay's sermon last week in Luke 9 and 10, and they, where we saw a lot of people, a lot of busyness that caused them to miss out on the Savior. And God, we don't want that to be the case with us. So even as we find ourselves with extra activities and busyness, even related to the holidays, God, help us help us to not miss out on you. And God, I also think this time of year can be hard for many of us. Uh, when we look at our life, maybe things are not what we wanted. Uh, maybe the holidays causes us to, to, to just see areas in our life where things don't measure up. Maybe what we see on TV causes us to realize our families don't meet the hallmark standard. Um, God, there just can be a lot of disappointments. And God, we, we know that you care about those. You care about the circumstances of our life. But we don't want those circumstances to also cause us to miss you. So God, we don't ignore those, but for now, help us to entrust them to you in a way that we can see your glory and gaze upon you, and see you better. And so as we come to your word right now in this this time, help us with that. Help us to hear from you this morning. And We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, we are going to beginning Luke this morning, but we're not going to stay there this morning. Actually, we're going to look at both Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Last two Sundays, Pastor Jay has been in the book of Luke looking at Jesus's ministry and seeing a number of reasons why he came as the Savior. Um, and as we do that this morning, one of the things I want us to know just from the get-go, a good reminder, is that Luke and Acts, both books are written by Luke. Uh, now, Luke was not an apostle. He was part of the early church. By trade, he was a physician. He was also a historian, and he took it upon himself to interview eyewitnesses of Jesus uh, to put together an orderly account to say, this is what Jesus did and, and it acts to say, this is what God did in his church. This is how this whole thing got started. Uh, so both written by him. Um, and the reason I want to start in Luke 11 today, Luke 11 is where we see one of the accounts of the Lord's Prayer. And I come uh, this morning with a question to start, and really the question is this, why do we celebrate the birth of a Savior? Why, 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 did, why did the Savior come? Why did he come? And you know, anytime we think about God's purposes, we can think about God's purposes kind of along two planes. Uh, there's a horizontal plane that deals with us, uh, kind of a human-focused thing, with the reasons that God does what he does on our account. And there's a vertical plane as well, that, that would be a God-focused plane, like why does God do what he does on his account? And I think a lot of times, you know, when we think about life, you know, our experience is in this horizontal plane, and so we tend to naturally go there, because that's what we see. We see this horizontal plane. We're very aware of our needs, right? Like from the moment we're born, you're very aware of your needs. And so we tend to think along that horizontal plane, even as it comes to uh, the reason for a Savior being born, there are horizontal reasons for it. For instance, in our Christmas program uh, last night, Chelsea read towards the end of it John three sixteen for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son there's an element of the Saviour coming that's based on God's love for you. God loved us, He sent His Son. Part of the horizontal need or the reason behind Jesus' birth is our just our need for a Saviour. That as sinful people, we fall short of God's standard and there's nothing we can do to kind of bridge that gap between us and a holy God. We needed somebody to come and live that righteous life that we couldn't. So horizontal reasons, but there's also vertical reasons. And and that's why I come to uh, Luke 11 this morning, because I want us to see that in this moment, as Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray... Right within Jesus' prayer, he, he shows us the vertical reason behind his mission. So I'd like to read those, just those first four verses of Luke 11. But feel free to read along and follow along with me. It says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So as Jesus prays, one of the things I want you to see is the first two requests that he makes in his prayer are God-focused. And I believe they show us his primary motivation behind his mission. You know, this is the danger. Anytime we uh, are very familiar with something, sometimes it loses its impact on us. Um, I, I don't know if you grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, so I heard the Lord's Prayer a lot. And even if you didn't grow up in the church, it's very likely that you heard the Lord's Prayer repeated in movies and on TV and just different elements of culture. And so we hear, and sometimes we just lose, like, the impact of it. And I know for myself, when I hear the Lord's Prayer, my natural inclination is to that very first line, just to kind of treat it like a salutation, like an opening statement that you just say, and then you move on to the rest of the prayer. And and that's not actually what's going on here. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, it's not an opening salutation. Rather, it's a request that God would make his name famous, that's what the word hallowed means. It means to make something greatly revered or honored, or the word I choose today is famous. And so Jesus is praying to God, and his very first request is, God, I want your name to be famous. I want your name to be revered. I want your name to be made great. The second request is very much like it. It's also God-focused. May your kingdom come. His desire is that this Father's kingdom authority would be present on earth, just as it is in the heavenly realms. So why look at this? Well, this morning I want you to see that, yes, Jesus had a horizontal focus in his mission, but he also has a vertical focus. And and really the vertical focus is his primary focus. The primary purpose of Jesus' mission was God's glory. Now, as we celebrate Advent, I think it's a good thing that we hold on to both the horizontal and the vertical elements. The horizontal and the vertical are not opposed to each other. Both elements are important. God loves you. And God is working for his glory. Both are true. And so as we um, come to the Word today... One of my specific purposes here is really that I want us to to take some time to really focus in on that vertical element of of Jesus' mission. And I want us to see that not only is Jesus' primary purpose to glorify God, but I want you to see that it has a very specific plan to it. It's not just a general, like, I like God to be glorified, But how he intended for this to be accomplished had a very specific and strategic element to it. So we're going to look at that. Now, we're going to move to the later part of Luke. But before we get there, you might not want to turn there yet because I'm going to come to Psalm 96 in a few moments. Because what I want to do is is I want want us to see what Jesus' mission was. What was his plan to glorify God And before we get to uh, some of these other passages, I I want us to think about this. How is it that God desired to be glorified? How is it that God desired to have his name be made famous? And a very important part of it is the nations. On your notes there, the nations are at the very core of God's plan to glorify himself. I give you a lot of passages there. We're not going to go look at them all. Um, and really, this is just a very small sampling. Really, God's desire to be worshiped by the nations shows up over and over and over again in his redemptive plan. And let me first talk about what God means by the nations. When, when the Bible uses that term, it's not talking about like political nation states like countries. Rather, the Bible has more in mind ethnic groups or what we might call people groups, um, many people refer to it as ethno-linguistic groups. In other words, groups of people who, who share a common history and a common language and a common culture. And the Bible has all sorts of words it uses for referring to these people. Uh, sometimes it calls them the nations, sometimes peoples. Uh, sometimes we use the word Gentiles, which just is simply a big word to mean non-Jewish people. In other words, the rest of the world. Um, sometimes it, we use the term families or the families of the earth. And, and the question would be, well, why does God's plan intentionally include the nations? Why does God desire to be worshipped by these nations? And, and here's what I believe. I believe that God created all the nations to be diverse and colorful in order that he would receive worship that's diverse and colorful. And it really makes sense. So you think about it, the God that we serve is an infinite God. But we're finite people, and we have finite language. So when we are worshiping and praising the infinite God with our finite language, what captures more his beauty? Us just using the same language and the same culture and the same worship style? Or a multitude of peoples worshiping him in a multitude of languages and cultures and styles? You see how that captures a little bit more the glory of God? See, I don't think God's plan is that someday at the end of time we'll all be merged into one indistinct uh, people group, all wearing the same clothes and speaking the same language. Rather, what we see in Scripture is God's heart is to be worshiped in every tongue and in every language. And indeed, this is what we see. I told you we'd be in Psalm 96, and you'll get a a glimpse of this in here as you hear God's heart, his passion for his, his worship among all peoples, I read from Psalm 96, starting verse seven. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved He will judge the peoples with equity. You hear God's heart for the nations, for worship among the nations. And this is just one reflection of all of Scripture. So with that in mind, uh, come with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, we we come to this point in Jesus' ministry where he has died on the cross. He was buried he's resurrected. And there's this brief period of time where for 40 days, Jesus spends time with his disciples the resurrected Jesus before he ascends to heaven, and he's revealing things about himself. He's preparing them to be the church. And there's this very interesting moment where he's revealing how he fulfills everything written in the scriptures about him. So what we just read in Psalm 96, he fulfills. Listen to what Jesus says. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So a couple things here that I want you to see. First of all, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he's saying, hey, I am the fulfillment of everything you've read. Moses and the law and the prophets and, and, and the Psalms, I fulfill it all. But I want you to notice something, that Jesus isn't the, the end of the story here. And there's still fulfillment left to be done because he says to them, look at verse 46 and 47 again. It's written that Christ should be suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And notice what he says in verse 47. And repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So you see here, as, as you see on your, your study notes, Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures, but it's not the end of the story. Fulfillment includes the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. So we see Jesus' purpose in glorifying God is this plan to glorify God specifically among all nations. So he has this plan. It's not just a general plan. It's not a generic plan. It's I want God to be glorified specifically in all the nations. And how is he going to accomplish this plan? Well, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Who's going to proclaim the good news to all the nations? Well, his witnesses, the church. And so Jesus' mission, this is one thing I think we need to understand. Jesus' mission to all nations must be strategically pursued. It's an, inter, it's an intentional task that's entrusted to us as Jesus' witnesses, you know, sometimes I hear, like, kind of the, uh, the call to discipleship in kind of very generic and unspecific terms. There's sometimes this plan put forth of, you know, you know, if you just go and you lead two people to Jesus, and each of those two people leads two people to Jesus, and that just keeps going, you know, the whole world would be reached in a couple years. Well, why hasn't that worked out? Well, that's a very unspecific plan, and, and it doesn't have much intentionality, and, and I don't think it worked because we need to be intentionally focused on the nations, not just reaching people in general, though we should be reaching people. And let me use an example of why this, this kind of generic plan doesn't work. Really close to my house is a Cambodian church. And you know, I didn't wake up this morning and think, you know, maybe I should go to the Cambodian church this morning. You know, it's never even crossed my mind to go to the Cambodian church. Why? Why? Well, if I go there, I won't speak the language they speak. They probably will have customs and traditions that are very different from my own. I'll feel like an outsider. So so to go there would require me to be very interested in just being in a place very different than I'm used to. Now, from what I understand, the Cambodian church has, that's near my house has solid doctrine. They believe the same thing. We have a common bond in Christ between us, and so there might be you know, opportunity for me to go there sometime but let's just say I wasn't a Christian. Would I ever in my right mind venture into a place so foreign? Well, probably not. Now let's just imagine if that little Cambodian church was the only church in the entire United States and and all of us were unsaved, would we ever say, you know what, let's go there and learn how to worship God? Well, no, because it's so foreign from us. What we need is we need to hear God's message in a language that we understand in a way that we understand. And here's the thing I'm getting at here, is that when it comes to um, uh, discipleship and making disciples, um, even if we uh, were to basically saturate our culture with Christianity, it wouldn't naturally jump over to other cultures without an intentional discipleship effort. And the reality is, today in the world, there are 7,000 unreached people groups. And each of them needs an intentional, strategic missionary effort so that they would know the good news of Jesus. Some of these groups live in the same countries. For instance, India has many unreached people groups. But even though they live within the same borders, they still need their own strategic missionary effort so that they would know the good news of Jesus. Now, this is one of the cool things, I think, is that Jesus came with this mission to make disciples, uh, to glorify God, I mean. And his plan to glorify God had this very specific element to it, that God would be glorified among all nations. And then Jesus gave us a mission. And he didn't just give us an unspecific mission. He didn't say, hey, just go make disciples. What did he say? Make disciples of all nations. So he gives us this very specific mission. But he didn't just leave it to us to figure out how to do this. He actually prepared his church for it. And I want us to see that, especially in the book of Acts. So we're going to go to the book of Acts. And as I said, the book of Acts, also written by Luke. And as, as we come here, we see that Jesus, what we're going to see, Jesus is continuing to fulfill his mission uh, through the church. And he's preparing the church for the mission. But this preparation requires some big paradigm shifts. As I said, the cool thing, he doesn't just give us a cross-cultural mission and leave it to ourselves to figure out. He prepares us. So Acts is very interesting because in a way Luke kind of rewinds the tape a little bit. Uh, we the Acts starts again with the resurrected Jesus. We get a little bit more detail about what he was doing those forty days before the ascension. And I want to bring your attention to Acts uh, chapter one, verses six. I want you to see this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. This is the resurrected Jesus. Acts six says this, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, notice here, the disciples weren't wrong to expect what they were expecting. They just didn't understand how God's plan was going to lay out. In their minds, they had this idea, Jesus is going to come, he's going to conquer sin and death, and then he's going to restore Israel to its glory as the, you know, as the king, as the conquering king. And they don't realize that Jesus actually would have two comings. The first coming, conquer sin and death. The second coming, return as the king to establish the kingdom. But between these two comings, there would be this time period where the gospel would be preached to the nations, Uh, really a, a time of mercy to the nations. And so Jesus doesn't correct his disciples. He doesn't say, hey, you're wrong to expect that. Rather, he just says, hey, that's not the timing right now. Your goal, your mission is to tell this to the whole world, to go to the ends of the earth. But notice he doesn't say just go do it, he says wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for this. This You're going to be clothed in power and wait for that to happen. And indeed, that's what the, the missionary I mean, that's what the church does. Uh, they go and they, they wait. Um, Acts details about a hundred of them waiting in an upper room praying, and, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking in tongues. It's the day of Pentecost. We're going to look at this. The day of Pentecost is so cool because it foreshadows God's global purposes. And what we're going to see is the Gospels preached for the first time in a distinctly international manner. So they're waiting in the room. They're, they're, all of a sudden, they're speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit's come upon them. And one thing I want you to be aware of is when the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, uh, one of the things the Holy Spirit's doing is verifying that these people are part of God's family. It makes sense. Like these were Jesus' disciples. He said, hey, wait until this happens. Imagine if you were them and you were waiting for like 20 years, you'd start to have some doubts, right? Uh, luckily, they don't wait that long. They're just waiting and it happens. And, and you'd, if it were you, you'd be like, "Whoa, yeah, I, I am his witness. I am his part of the family. So, so receiving the Holy Spirit is a way of verifying, stamp of approval. These are part of my family, And they're speaking in tongues, and there's this commotion, and people hear them. I mean, you have a, a hundred people speaking in tongues. And so all these people gather around to hear them, and I want you to hear what they say. Look at Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, uh, Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phyrega, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. That's really cool. This is the first time the gospel is proclaimed. And did you notice what language it's being proclaimed in? All of them. And I think that's really interesting because think about the implications of that. What that says is there isn't one language or culture that has the market cornered when it comes to sharing God's good news. If the gospel was shared for the first time in Greek, there'd be people going around saying, you know, if you haven't heard the gospel in Greek, you haven't really heard the real gospel. You know, you have to learn Greek to hear God's gospel. No, what we see here is God intended people to hear his good news in their own language because God intends to be worshiped in their own language. God is passionate for the worship of all nations. While there's a lot of languages being spoken here, what we have is still a Jewish crowd, and the early Christians are distinctly Jewish still, and and their manner of going out and sharing the good news is still going to other Jewish people. And so uh, God still has some work, some paradigm shifting he's going to do. And we see this happen in Acts chapter 8. And there's some Uh, persecution that happens, and the church gets dispersed. And one of the Christians, Philip, he's a a Greek-speaking Jew, Philip ends up in Samaria. Now, what do you know about the Samaritans? Uh, The Samaritans were not liked by the Jews. They were kind of a half braid people. They were a mixture of Jewish lineage as well as some pagan lineage of people that former conquerors had brought in. And they still looked Pretty Jewish. They still practiced some Jewish things, but they had some other stuff mixed in. It created a lot of of tension and conflict. You might recall, actually, uh, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan, and one of her questions was this. She says, hey, where should we worship? You Jews say we should go worship at this temple, but our people say you should worship at this mountain. Where's the right place to worship? You see, so there's some differences of opinion going on here, And, and so it led to some conflict. But overall, they looked pretty Jewish, and Philip ends up in Samaria, and he's preaching to the Samaritans, and they believe what they hear. Uh, They they joyfully receive the good news of Jesus. And I wanted you to see what happens as a result. The the church in Jerusalem hears about this. And and we're going to look at Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 14. It says this, "'Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God,' They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So you see this. The Samaritans believed, they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until John and Peter came and laid hands on them. Why is that? Well, John and Peter are apostles. They're authorities in the church. Do you remember what it means to receive the Holy Spirit? To receive the Holy Spirit is a stamp of verification. These people are in my family. I think God intentionally waits until two of the leaders of the church can come and see it with their own eyes to verify, wow, God really did do that. They really did receive the Holy Spirit. They are part of God's family. I think that's what God was doing. There's a really cool uh, story here as well after this Philip then is taken uh, into the desert and he runs across this Ethiopian official reading Isaiah of all things saying what's this about and Philip ends up baptizing him. The guy goes on to Ethiopia, a Christian. It's just a cool story because you kind of get this little hint that God is already reaching the nations before the Christians are done with Samaria. Uh, kind of like saying, you know, God, this is his mission, by the way. He, he, he has this. Um, so I just love it. I won't say much more about that because Pastor Jay is going to be looking at that more specifically next week. But what we have here at the end of Acts 8 is we have Jewish Christians, we have Samaritan Christians. Uh, yeah, between the groups, uh, Jewish and Samaritan people, there is some conflict. But, but one thing you see is there, there is a lot of similarity between them. One thing that's very similar between the two groups is they both practice circumcision. Okay? So there we go. But now things are going to get really wild. In Acts chapter 10, we find Peter, and Peter is going to be sent to the Gentiles. Now, Peter is up on his roof praying, and he starts having this vision three times. This blanket comes down from heaven and it's full of all these unclean animals. I mean, there's pigs on it and reptiles on it and all sorts of things. And he hears this voice saying, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter's like, whoa, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. This happens three times. And finally, God says, Peter, what I've called clean, don't call common. It really has nothing to do about eating bacon or eating unclean animals this is all preparing Peter for what happens next. There's a man named Cornelius. He's a uh, a Gentile, a Greek man. He uh, wants to follow God. He gets this vision from God that he should send servants to go get Peter. He does. Right after these visions, these servants knock on Peter's door and they say, hey, you're supposed to come with us to go see Cornelius. Well, Peter goes with them. He's been prepared for it. He said, well, Uh, Normally, a Jewish guy going to a Gentile's house would not happen. They're considered unclean. But Peter goes. And I I think there's some humor in this story, honestly, because Peter is not a textbook example of how to do mission trips. Uh, Very first thing he says as he gets in the house, he's like, you know how offensive it is for me to be here. Uh, Don't do this. But for whatever reason, he, he preaches, he obeys God, and as he's preaching, I want you to hear what happens. Look at Acts 10, verse 44. As while Peter was still saying these things, so right in the middle of what he's preaching, okay? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues, and extolling God, then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? What does receiving the Holy Spirit mean? These are my people. They're part of my family. Stamp of approval. And do you notice a difference here between this and the Samaritans? The Samaritans, they, they had believed, they had been baptized. The Holy Spirit didn't come until hands were laid on them. In this case, Peter's still mid-sermon. They believe, and boom, Holy Spirit's there, and Peter's like, you think we should baptize these people? Uh, and get the water. Um, why does God do this? Why the difference? Here's what I believe. I believe that if God had waited and the people in Cornelius' house had said, you know, we really like what you're saying, Peter. How do we become Christians? I, I believe that Peter would have said, well, um, you know, we probably should get you circumcised first. Uh, and they get you kind of washed up, and then we'll baptize you, and then we'll lay hands on you and pray for you. And I don't think Peter would be a bad guy for thinking this. After all, it, all Peter, it's all Peter had known at this point. Peter's a Jewish man. In his mind, following God and being Jewish are the same thing. Peter had followed around the Jewish Messiah for the last three years of his life. The Jewish Messiah wore Jewish clothing, he practiced Jewish traditions. He celebrated Jewish holidays. He was circumcised. And guess what? So was everybody who followed him around. So I, wanted, I would expect Peter to think this way, but God has something very different in mind. Without requiring any cultural change, God gives the Holy Spirit, and it's a shocking statement from God saying, you can be part of God's people and follow the Messiah without adopting a Jewish identity. And I think this paradigm shift is so radical that no human involvement is allowed. Because this is what God wants to establish. Salvation is by faith alone. You don't have to undergo any external action before you're saved. You can follow Jesus and you can retain your cultural identity. Well, it creates some controversy. I mean, this is really stretching for the church. And and it gets, you know, taken care of for a while, but soon... Paul, who just got saved, goes on his first missionary trip and a bunch of Gentiles come to faith. And this report of all these Gentiles coming to faith causes all the controversy to boil over. You see there in your notes, the success of Paul's first mission trip to the Gentiles leads to a controversy that must be addressed by the apostles. What is required of Gentiles to follow Jesus? That's the question on the table. And the apostles' decisions based on Scripture and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. First, they look at what God's done among the Samaritans in Cornelius' house. They say, I mean, we were there. We saw the Holy Spirit. God put his stamp of approval on these people. So who are we to argue with God? And then they look at Scripture. They go to, say, for instance, Amos 9 and say, well, it sure seems like you know, Scripture supports the idea of the nations coming and being part of God's people. So they come to this conclusion, they write to the Gentiles, and and they basically come to the conclusion that you can follow God without adopting Jewish cultural or religious practices. And really, this establishes the strategy for how God's mission is to be carried out. Not only are we to make disciples of all nations, but they can become disciples without leaving their culture, because, again, God's not trying to get rid of ethnic diversity. He's not trying to blend us all into one people group. He wants worship from the nations. He wants worship in every tribe and tongue. God's plan all along is to create a people of peoples, a multitude of peoples, worshiping him as we see in Revelation. So I want us to consider then, how do we respond to God's word on this third Sunday of Advent? Well, the first thing is this. I think the Christmas story, I want us to see this. When you, when you celebrate Christmas this year, I want you to see the Christmas story is a story for all nations. And our ability to celebrate this today is the result of past Christians being obedient to the mission that they were given to the nations. You know, as we sit in this room today, I don't know the background, the ethnic background of every person here, but I doubt very many of us came from a Jewish lineage. So the very fact that you are here is because somebody specifically and strategically took the gospel to the nations, I love the diversity we have in this room. Aren't you glad that God's redemptive plan intentionally included you? I hope you are. The second thing I want us to think about then is just this this final item on your notes. It's easy to create and worship a caricature of Jesus rather than the living Savior. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior, let's remember and live for the reason he was born. What do I mean by a caricature? Well, Whenever it comes to any historical figure, it's really easy to kind of reduce people down to maybe just a few bits of who they actually were. Or we can even completely mischaracterize people. And I think this happens a lot with Jesus. When I look at our culture, some of the ways I see people talking about Jesus, uh, I think our culture tends to think of Jesus sometimes as just a good moral teacher. For others, he's just somewhat of a peaceful hippie. For others, he's a political revolutionary. Some people see him as the precursor of socialism. Others think he is the foundation of capitalism. Some think he simply came to correct racial inequality. And for some people, Jesus never even left the manger. He's perpetually a little baby in their mind. It's so important for us to respond to not a Jesus of our own making or a Jesus on our own terms, but to respond to Jesus, our living Savior. He's not just a a figure from history. He is the living Savior. He's at work in the world today. And so we can't make Jesus fit into our agenda. We have to get on to his agenda. So this is what I'm after this morning. To, To follow Jesus, to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, means I have to care about the things he cares about. My heart has to resonate with the things that he's passionate about. I have to live and work for the things that he's working for. What's Jesus passionate about? I hope that we've seen very clearly today that he's passionate about the worship of all nations. This is a theme that shows up frequently throughout the scriptures. It shows up in the priority that he had, the glorifying the Father, It shows up in the priority that the very last command he gives the church is go make disciples of all nations, go to the ends of the earth. And I think it's evident in the way that God prepared the church to be intentionally international and cross-cultural. So I think we need to care about the things that Jesus cares about. You know, I want you to hear this today, because anytime I speak about missions, I I know there's people who think, and maybe you're thinking this today, that, you know, missions just isn't for me. That's for some people. That's not for me. I've heard people say, you know, I'm just not into missions. Or others say, "Why, why are you worried about doing work over there? Don't we have enough work to do here? Don't we need to take care of our own issues first? Let me speak to some of those things here as we wrap up. I think there's a few misconceptions when it comes to missions. Sometimes we think of missions as for people who are unusually interested in global things. You know, just those people who got bit by the travel bug or those people who like to eat international food. Sometimes we think of missions as being really just for people who are really caring people. Maybe they really care about needy people. You know, those people who get their heartstrings pulled when they watch a video of kids living in a foreign country. And sometimes we think of missions as something you do when you really have all your other problems solved or you just have extra time on your hand or extra funds in the bank. It's, it's just a stretch goal. And you know, here's the thing I, I want you to see is that none of these things can be the fuel for missions. None of them will sustain missions. The fuel for missions must be a passion for God and his glory. When missions is based on a passion for God, I will go where he tells me to go not just to the places I'm interested in. You know, Jesus didn't come to earth because he got bit by the travel bug. He didn't come to earth to eat some foreign food. Have you ever thought about that? He left a place of glory, a place where he was praised and worshipped to be born in squalor. And he did that because he was passionate for the worship of God among the nations. When missions is based on a passion for God, we won't be limited by how lovable a people group is or how warm our feelings are toward them. If missions is fueled by how much we love people, it won't go very far because the reality is people can be really hard to love. The Jewish Christians would have never gone to share Christ with their oppressors. And Paul would have never longed to go and share the good news in Rome. When missions is based on a passion for God, we will realize that God's global purposes are not at odds with reaching our own culture. If it were, the Jewish Christians would have never moved beyond their their interest in restoring Israel's glory, would have never moved beyond politics. Now, in fact, what we find is the churches that are growing the most are the most missionally minded When we live for God's glory, yes, we share the gospel with our friends and our family and with our culture and and with people who are like us, but we also must strategically and intentionally pursue making disciples of all people, people who aren't like us, so that God receives the worship that he longs for. See, missions must be fueled by a passion for God's glory among the nations, So as you celebrate the birth of Jesus this year, this is what I want to challenge you with, okay? I, I want you to ask, are you living for the reason that Jesus came? And yes, hold on to the horizontal reasons we talked about. God loves you. God loves you. But hold on to that vertical reason as well. Jesus came so that God would be glorified and live for it. Live for God's glory among the nations. I'd love to pray for us. I'd love to invite you to stand. And and let's pray before we, we head out. God, I'm thankful for the time that we've had today. I thank you for this church, this congregation, for each person who is here. And God, I'd pray on our behalf that, God, you would move our hearts so that they would echo the prayer that Jesus prayed, that we really would say Father, uh, hallowed be your name. Would your name be made famous and revered and glorified and be made great among all nations? And God, may your kingdom come. May your authority be observed. May people live for your authority. May they submit to your authority in all the earth among all peoples. And God, help us to live for these things. You have called each of us to have some role in it. And help us to not say, you know, I'm just not interested in that, but, but to say, no, I'm interested because I, I want God to be glorified. Oh, help us to live for your glory. And God, I'm so thankful that you are a God, that your vertical purposes are not at odds with your horizontal purposes. And I thank you that you are a God who cares for the, the things that we are experiencing now and, and the needs that we have. And God, we entrust these to you. I don't know what each person in the room or each person watching out on the other screen are are going through today, but God, I know that you care, and I know that you love them. And so would you would you come and, and and intercede? God, I'd pray that you'd have your hand on each person in this congregation, that you would be with us this week as we interact with others, and that that through us we would speak words that glorify you that demonstrate your love, that demonstrate your grace, that that, that point to your truth. Help us to do this, Lord. We can't do it in our own strength. And so, Lord, in all these things, we entrust them to you. And we thank you for this season that we can celebrate a Savior that came. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.